We welcome you this morning, of course. It is summer. Hard to believe only three weeks to go, I think, till September. <laughs> you see, when you're in ministry, you're just kind of looking forward to folks getting back and getting on with ministry. And I mean, enjoy the rest while you can. But, but in any case, we always have a nice fall, a nice Indian fall, Indian summer, rather we call it in the fall, beautiful season. Um, we're so glad to have with us this morning um, Helen McMinn. Um, I was saying to Helen, I, just, I was thinking of her this morning, and about two minutes after the fact, a knock comes on the door, and it's Helen. Where are you, Helen? Oh, there she is. Bless you. Good to see you, Helen. She's one of our global workers in Africa. And I also understood that, is Pastor Power with us this morning? There he is. Pastor Power, God bless you. Doesn't look a day older. <laughs> Margaret, Brenda, God bless you. It's so good to have you with us this morning. Um, Pastor, if you're up to it this morning, would you like to help me with communion after? Are you up to that? Okay. Just give you the heads up, so put you on the spot. Amen. Amen. Well, good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, a uh, beautiful little uh, city, is actually home to a, one of the most peculiar stores or supermarkets uh, you will ever find. Uh, there's actually over 110,000 products on the shelves in this vast warehouse, kind of like the size of Costco. But what is so unique about this particular supermarket is that, or it's actually a museum, is that there's only one of every product. And in fact, you won't find any of these products in any other stores anywhere on the planet. Because these are all products that at one time were on a supermarket shelf, but they only lasted a week, maybe a month, because almost nobody bought them. And this supermarket, this warehouse, is actually called the Museum of Failed Products. It's the only place in the world, for example, that you will find a bottle of Clairol's A Touch of Yogurt Shampoo. It is the only place you will find, unless you go to Carolyn's house, what is called AM Breakfast Cola. I call that Carolyn's uh, smoothie in the morning every morning with a little bit of ice. Uh, the museum is also home to a TV dinner made by the toothpaste company Colgate, as well as a self-heating soup can that had the tendency to blow up in people's faces. Now here's a great one I've never seen, it probably was in the States, but it's actually a sandwich in a can called a Candwich. And of course, who can forget Maxwell House's ready-to-drink coffee? I don't know if you remember that one. Didn't last too long, but uh, obviously not a very good seller. But all of these products kind of beg the question, what in the world were you thinking when you made these things? And you know, I wonder, as I was reading that story, I wondered myself, if we could peer into our own mind, or we could maybe look into the mind of somebody else, if we would not find a museum of failure. If we would not find maybe shelf upon shelf of bad decisions, missed opportunities, disappointments, and regrets. And in fact, I would venture a guess that in every one of us, in our minds, there's probably something or some things that we would never want to come to light. We wouldn't want other people to know about. And in fact, many of these things oftentimes become a basis in our own heart for condemnation and guilt and shame. I don't know about you, 
But there have been things that come to my mind once in a while, maybe from many years ago, and when it comes to my mind, my first thought is, what in the world was I thinking? How could I have done that? How could I have said that? How could I have been so unwise? How could I have been so stupid, so mean, whatever it may be? But what was I thinking? And what I find is that these kind of thoughts, they're kind of like just little threads of, of self-dissatisfaction that if we don't deal with, over time they weave themselves into this straitjacket of self-condemnation. And that's where I can find myself living in some of these areas, some of these issues. This morning, I just felt to interrupt a series that we have been doing. We've been doing a series called Things I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said. And it really just deals with some of the hard sayings of Jesus. And this morning, I just felt with the Lord's table before us to interrupt that, to deal with this particular table, or this particular topic. The table of the Lord is also commonly called the communion table. And one of the reasons for that is because it's reminiscent of the Old Testament Ark of the Covenant, which was a little two-by-four box that was covered with pure gold. And God had said to Moses, Moses, it is there that I will meet with you. It is there that I will speak with you. It is there that I will show you how to lead my people in everything that I have for them. And so when we look at the Lord's table here this morning, we recognize it in the same way because of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, he says, this is a table of remembrance. What do I want to remember? Do I want to remember all the bad things you've done? Do I want you to remember all of your sins? No, I want you to remember what I've done for you so that we can have communion. The scripture says in the Old Testament that God met with Moses and he spoke to him face to face as one speaks to a friend. And we forget sometimes, but what God has done for us through Christ, he has actually made us again friends of God. I am a friend of God. And God says, because of what I've done through this Lord's table that is represented here this morning, through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross to forgive your sins, through the resurrection, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, what I have done for you, you know what? Now we can meet together. We can talk face to face. Uh, you can hear my voice. Uh, you can be led by the Holy Spirit into the freedom, into everything that I've intended for you. That's what this table of communion represents. And yet the Bible makes it very clear, and all of us know this by experience, that we have a very real adversary. His name is Satan or the devil, and he resists us at every single opportunity that he has. The Bible gives us some other titles. For example, he is called the father of lies. He is called the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He's called the old serpent. And his greatest weapons are condemnation and guilt and shame. Now, guilt in and of itself is not a bad thing. Guilt is simply a bad feeling we have when we know we've done something wrong. It's what the Bible basically refers to as a godly sorrow that brings us to repentance. So if we feel guilty about something, it's, it's conviction. It's the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, you know better than that. You shouldn't do that, and you need to repent of that. You need to apologize for that. There needs to be atonement for that. You need to deal with this through repentance and confession so that I can forgive it, wash it away, and you can move on. That's guilt. That's a, that's a healthy thing. It's conviction. But the problem is shame is different. Guilt you might describe as seeing our failures and pursuing forgiveness, but as you see here, Shame is seeing ourselves as failures and therefore feeling unworthy to ask for forgiveness. Do you see the distinction? 
Guilt, I see what I've done wrong. That was wrong, I shouldn't do that. Shame says, I'm wrong, I'm broken, I'm dysfunctional, I'm useless, I'm worthless. And because of that, rather than pursuing forgiveness, I just kind of stay away from God. doesn't mean I don't believe in Him. It doesn't mean I haven't trusted in Him for salvation and going to heaven. But as far as really being led by the Spirit into a joy, into the fullness of all that He has for me, I feel disqualified. And I'm even able to kind of explain it away as far as, Lord, I would love to do great things, believe great things for you, but I, I just know who I am. I just, that's just not me. It's kind of like Peter when Jesus brought up the big load of fish. What, did, what was Peter's reaction? Get away from me. I'm unworthy. I'm a sinful man. And basically what happens is we can be believers who come into the house of God and we worship God and we're so sincere and our hearts long for God, but we're kind of like Peter because of those things that have been registered in our heart that make us feel like we are failures ourselves, that we're not good enough, is we never expect anything that God has for us to happen. It's kind of like, Lord, I know you're great and I know you can do those things for everybody else, but not for me. And it's okay, I understand, Lord, because I know what a failure I am. But I'm thankful that you love me and I'm thankful that I'm going to heaven. And yet, that's not the truth. The devil wants you to give up. And the devil wants to give you regular tours through your museum of failure. The devil has a real skill for kind of taking you down aisle by aisle, looking at every item from the past, even some things you forgot a long, long time ago, because he wants to make sure that those struggles in your past Maybe as recent as this morning, maybe many years ago. He wants to make sure those past struggles become present strongholds in your life. And he wants to wear you down spiritually. And he wants to give you an image of yourself that is completely distorted. The devil wants you to look at your failures so that you see yourself as a failure. And the sad thing is this. I have found over the years that when most Christians hear these condemning thoughts they actually think it's God telling them those things. And that's the furthest thing from the truth. Jesus said in John 12, I did not come to condemn the world. I came to save it. He didn't make it complicated. He said, you've got to understand this, people. I've not come to condemn you. I've come to save you. You know you're lost. You know you're without hope. You know you're far from God. I don't have to beat you over the head with that. I've come to let you know that there's a way out. The Bible says in Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're not things that we make physically. It's not just through our own words and imagination, he says, but they're mighty through God. God has given us spiritual weapons. Why? To pull down strongholds, to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bring it into captivity, that is submission, every thought to make it obey Christ. The imagination is simply this that Paul's referring to. The imagination is an image that Satan has placed in your mind that is based on a lie. That's what he's talking about. The imaginations is an image that Satan has fabricated, oftentimes with your cooperation and your agreement. It's lodged in your mind, in your heart, and it is based on a lie. Because if you see yourself as a failure when you're actually a friend of God, then you've got to get that imagination dealt with. When you have something in your mind that is not based on God's word, it is not truth. As the people of God, we have to learn to lay hold of that image, to cast down the image, and to place it underfoot. And to say, that's not who I am. 
And that's just not just some kind of positive confession or, or some kind of positive mental attitude. That is truth. That is the truth of God's word, of who he says that you actually are. Now, there's a good reason why the devil wants you to feel like a disappointment to God. And if I was to ask you this morning, don't do it, of course, but if I was to ask you to raise your hand, I believe every hand would honestly go up if I asked the question, do you feel today that you are a disappointment to God, or have you felt in the past that you have disappointed God? I believe all of us would raise our hand. And if you can't think of something, wait for a moment, and the devil will bring it to mind. But the devil knows if he can make me feel like a disappointment to God, what happens? I stay away from God. It's not that I don't believe in Him or love Him or want to be used by Him, but I set limitations. And isn't it funny how it's almost in a, in a pious way, I think I'm being spiritual, that I set my own limitations based on things that I have done, based on my mess-ups, based on my mistakes, my sins, my failures of the past. I only expect so much because surely, you know, I, I still kind of have to pay for what I've done. I've still got to recognize that I'm, I'm not as good as I should have been or I'm not as great as God wants me to be. And so I kind of set my own parameters and somehow I think I'm actually honoring God with that. I'm actually being reverent to God with that. When what I'm actually doing is simply playing into the hands of the enemy. The Bible says in 1 John, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And yet our hearts do condemn us. Why? Because so often we end up believing the very opposite of what God says about us. And we just get locked into a place. The devil wants you to believe that wherever you find yourself today, that your fate is basically sealed. That's who you are. That's as far as you're going to go. That's basically what you're going to enjoy in life or pretty much much of the same thing from now on. Nothing is going to change. Nothing can change. But listen to God's word through Isaiah. I love this passage, and I'm reading it in a a modern translation, but God says this. He says, come now. Let's settle this. I I love that wording. Uh, The older translation, you know, says, come, let us reason together, the Lord says. But I love the way this translation says it. The Lord says, come, let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. It's not something you're going to strive to do. I've made provision for it. I will do it. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. I want you to notice what God said. He doesn't say, get away from me. Because you've sinned, because you've messed up, don't come near me. He doesn't say that. He says the exact opposite. He says, come to me. In fact, he says it this way. He says, look, let's settle this now. Don't waste any more time. This thing has been dragging you down, holding you down, holding you back for whatever reason, whether you agree with it or not. But listen, you're wasting time. You're wasting your life. You're wasting all that I've placed into you and all that I have for you. Look, would you, would you come? Stop dwelling on this. Stop staying away from me. Come on. Come. Let's, let's deal with this together. Let's get rid of this thing once and for all right now. Friends, the only failure God cannot forgive is the one that you won't bring to him. That's it. It's the only one. Um, I'm a bit of a Johnny Depp fan. I don't know if you folks like Johnny Depp or not. I think he's a pretty, pretty uh, good actor. He had an interview in Rolling Stone magazine not too long ago. And uh, I don't read Rolling Stone in case you're wondering. Okay. It's just an illustration I came across. Um, but he was talking about his struggle with really being himself around other people. And this is what he said. He said, covering myself up in makeup, it's easier to look at someone else. 
it's easier to look at someone else's face than your own. I, I think for everyone. Get this. You wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, and you're like, oh, that idiot again? You're still here? What do you want? Hiding. I think it's important. It's important for what, what's ever left of your sanity, I guess. You wake up in the morning, you brush your teeth, you look into the mirror, and you think, oh, you again? The Bible says in Proverbs, you will never succeed in life if you try to hide your sins. Confess them. Give them up. I love that wording. Give them up. Lord, you can take it. I'm not doing very well dealing with it. It's not helping me. Lord, I just give them up to you. I'm not holding on anymore. Then God will show mercy to you. Some of us here this morning, we're hanging on to our past. But you know, equally, some of us here this morning, we're hanging on to what has been the pattern of our life up till now. It's not only the past that can limit you. It's what has been the routine of your life or of your experience in Christ to this point, believing, well, it's always been that way, so I really can't expect much more. Whereas God says, I want you to go from strength to strength. We sang about it this morning. I want you to go from grace to grace. I want you to experience more grace. I want you to experience a largeness developing in your life that you can contain more of the fullness of Christ and minister more of the fullness of Christ around you. It ought to be getting sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. That's the Lord's heart toward us, he says. Well, how do we overcome these feelings of condemnation or these things that limit us or maybe even shame? Two simple points. Number one, don't dwell on the past. Don't dwell on the failures. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore them. It doesn't mean we deny that they happen. No. What we are ignoring, and this is so key, we're ignoring the lie. We're not ignoring what happened. We're not ignoring where we failed. We're ignoring the lie, not the sin. But here's the key. If we have confessed our sin, we are choosing to ignore the lie because we understand that our sin has been dealt with and has been washed away. So the logical question is, if you have confessed your sin and the Lord has forgiven you, why are you still thinking about something that doesn't exist? I mean, I don't mean to make it overly simplistic. That is the truth of God's Word. If God says, it doesn't exist anymore, I've forgiven you, why do you keep thinking about it? It doesn't exist and it's not who you are. The psalmist said, God has removed our sins as far from us as the east is from the west. So why are you still thinking about them? You need to stop focusing on the failure and start praising God for his forgiveness and for freeing you from those sins and from those failures. Instead of believing a lie, the word says, believe the truth of God's word concerning you. What does John say? If we confess our sins to God, he will forgive us our sins and he will cleanse us, purify us from most of our wrongdoings. Right? No, that's the way we read it. I mean, Lord, do you really mean all? I said all. Do you really mean all? I said all. And you know what? It even says the same in Greek. All. It's not that complicated. It's just hard to believe and hard to receive. Romans 8, we know it well. There is now no condemnation to those who belong to Christ. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you. If I came to condemn you, why would I die in your place? I came to save you from being condemned. 
and to save you from the condemnation of your sins and your failures. And he says, listen, once you are forgiven, don't just stand there, get moving. It's for freedom that you've been set free. And that's why Paul says in Philippians, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. Taking God as his word. So you need to stop dwelling on the past. And the second thing, you need to disassociate yourself from the past. You need to disassociate yourself from the past. The Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, anyone who belongs to Christ is a new creation. The old life has passed away. It is gone. It is buried. It is dead. It is no more. A brand new life, a brand new creation, a brand new person has come. Now, why in the world did God choose to make us a new person? Why did he just kind of reform us? Why did he just kind of clean up the little things that were wrong and, you know, pat us on the behind and go on, you know, try to do your best? Why did he make us a new person? I believe it's because he wants to understand he doesn't want your past to be part of your life anymore. And your past isn't just 35 years ago. It could be this morning. Anything that you've done that you failed or sinned that in any way defeats you or condemns you, be honest, confess it to the Lord, let the Lord forgive you and move on. The literal translation of that verse, as some of you may know, in the original Greek actually is interesting, where Paul says, all things have passed away, behold, all things, look, all things are new. The literal translation is, if any person is a new person in Christ, the old life has passed away and it continues to pass away. The new life has come, and it continues to come, continues to blossom, continues to unfold. What's the significance of that? It means that if you become a new person the very first day that you've opened your heart to the love of Christ, or if you had the potential to become new again, even this morning, of just whatever it is that was in your, in your heart or life or action or failure that just kind of sullies you, just kind of makes you feel dirty, the Lord says, I can wash that again. You can have that newness restored. And if you are a new person, it means in God's eyes you are never that old person again. Now let that sink in. You are not the old person. You are not that sinful person anymore. So to disassociate yourself from the past does not mean you ignore your failure or deny that you've messed up. It means this. It means you understand that because you failed, you are not a failure. What you are is this. You are a child of God who, according to the book of Hebrews, has access to the very throne room, the presence of God where you may come with confidence and joy, where you will find mercy and help for whatever it is you need. That's who you are. That's who you are in the Word of God. You know, I hear Christians say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. And I know what we mean by that, but friends, that's not biblical. You are not a sinner saved by grace. Now, where that expression comes from, it comes from Paul's words to Timothy in which Paul says this, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of which I am chief. This translation, he says, with which I'm the worst. Now, here's what's important to understand. Paul was not saying, I'm a sinner. Paul was testifying to the fact that I was the worst sinner that Jesus ever saved. I was a hypocrite. I was religious. I was proud. I was a murderer of Christians. Jesus came to save sinners. And when he saved me, when I was a sinner, I was the worst kind of sinner. And if he can save me, 
He can save you. He can save anybody. That's what Paul is getting to. And the reason I know this is because in Paul's letters, how does he refer to the people of God? Church after church, I write to the saints who are in Corinth. Corinth was a vile city. It had a lot of weird practices even going on in the church. Some of the people in the church even thought they were kind of enlightened and spiritual because they could tolerate a guy in the church who was sleeping around with his mother-in-law or stepmother, rather. So it's kind of pretty nasty stuff going on. And yet Paul writes to them, and he calls them saints. He speaks to them according to the position that they hold to understand the resource that's available to them, the high calling that is theirs, and who they can be. So I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I am a saint who's been saved by grace. And here's the difference. If I view myself as a sinner, and this is where so many people in the body of Christ live today, if I just see myself as a sinner or even a sinner saved by grace, then I look at my constant failures, I look at my falling into sin as something that is understandable. And it's even expected, and I become comfortable living a saved life that is filled with compromise. Because that's all I see myself as. I'm only human. Well, let me let you in on a little secret. When God made the first human, they didn't sin. They were made sinless until they chose to sin. You see, and when we are restored in, as the, in the family of God, as sons and daughters of God, we have a new nature. We have the Holy Spirit living with us. We can feed upon the Word of God. We have truth and life. You know what? Sin ought to be, as Peter says, it ought to be the exception to what you do, not the norm. When you sin, you ought to be surprised. Hey, this is my nature. This is not what I'm called to be. I'm above this. And live in the freedom of a holy life that God's called us to and the fulfillment that comes with that. But here's the importance of, of really recognizing and of disassociating ourselves from the past. Why it's so important, I believe, is because of this. If I repeat a failure that I've done in the past, if I've repeated a sin, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? Now, you guys are more spiritual than me, but I'm going to tell you what, I, what comes to my mind. Here's how my thinking is. Man, I haven't changed a bit. I'm still the same idiot looking in the mirror. Ah, you again. You see, if I don't disassociate myself from sin, what happens is if and when I sin or failure or feel the disappointed God, I begin to think that because I've done that, it means really I'm just the same old person. And that's where the lie is. And that's where I have to disassociate myself and believe God's truth instead. That even though I may have done something that I did in the past, that does not define who I am. If I sin, John says, I can confess my sin and we can continue to walk in the light. Uh, Father and Son, with my Heavenly Father, I can walk in that light because that thing ought to be the exception. But if I struggle, I bring my struggles to the Lord. But if I don't disassociate myself from that, I begin to believe the lie that I haven't changed. And really, it's a slap in the face of God. You really didn't save me. You really didn't change me. I, I guess all this stuff really doesn't work. It does work, but where defeat comes in is when I believe the lie of the enemy. And I live that way, and I don't expect that much. I'm a new person. I'm a new creation, and I have the power of a new identity if I will believe what God says about me and walk in that. 
You know, God's deepest desire is to see every one of us turn to him and be forgiven. We can't even begin to understand the deep love God has for us. And yet we do see it in our lives. We see it in others' lives. We see it in the word of God. I was, I was thinking of, of the story in, in the Gospel of John. Jesus is standing there minding his own business, and there's these people that want to trick him. They want to catch him. They want to kill him. And so they decide they're going to go find this woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And I always wonder, you know, the fact that they caught her in the very act of adultery, to me says they knew where she was, which to me says they were probably involved with her as well some other time. But they needed someone to use to bait Jesus and trick Jesus. So they go and they grab her in the midst of adultery. And if you want to get an idea what the frenzy would have been like, just think of some of the stories you see on the news today in some of the radical Muslim countries when someone's caught in adultery or some sin, sin and they're stoned in public or they're beheaded, whatever the case may be. That's the fervor that was going on. That was the atmosphere that afternoon. And so they drag this woman, this mad mob, drag this woman. They find Jesus. They throw her at his feet. And they're waiting for the verdict. They say, we're going to catch this guy, this goody two-shoes, a guy speaking about love and forgiveness, all that kind of stuff. Let's see what he does here. Because if he knows the, the law of Moses, he has to pronounce a sentence over her. He's got to condemn her. They thought they had him all set. What happens? Jesus doesn't do anything. They're getting impatient. What are you going to do? I kind of, you know, I kind of picture Jesus going, okay. Whichever one of you has never sinned, go ahead and, and throw the first stone at her. Go ahead. And the Bible says that from the oldest to the youngest, the crowd begins to disperse. They realize they all have sinned. So they're gone. Just this madness, this screaming, all the crowd, they're gone. And now in the quietness of that afternoon, Jesus is standing alone with the woman. And Jesus just turns to her. And, and you've got to understand, this woman fully expected to be dead. She knew her fate was sealed. She was dragged into the house. She knew what they did. She'd seen it before. She understood the culture. I'm dead. I'm going to be stoned to death. She was absolutely horrified. Jesus looks at her and says, where are those who condemn you? Anybody around? And, Jesus, and the woman says, no, sir, there's none." And I love what Jesus says. He says, well, then, I don't condemn you either. Go. Be free. Go. And just don't sin anymore. Now, Jesus didn't say that she was never going to commit a sin. What he was saying was, I've forgiven you. Just, just stop doing this. You don't have to do this anymore. That's not who you are. You're, you're, you're so much better than this. Just go and, and, and be what God's made you to be. There is no sin too great for Jesus to forgive. The only sin God cannot forgive is what? It's the one that you won't bring to him. That's the only one. Before we come to the table, I want to shift gears for just a moment, and I want to turn to Revelation chapter 12. A scripture that came to mind as I was studying for this and looking at some of the titles given to the devil. In Revelation chapter 12, we read of a future and final confrontation between the devil and his armies of darkness and the armies of the Lord. And it's interesting because in Revelation 12, this scene is actually written in the past tense. And the reason prophetic scripture does that is to underline the fact that it's as good as done. This is going to happen just like it says. It's, it's a fait accompli already. In Revelation chapter 12, we read in verse 8 that the dragon, that is the devil, was, was not strong enough in that battle. He and his angels lost his place in heaven. What that means is that they lost that high ground, the strategic high ground, that leverage that they have. 
Because in that realm of the spirit, the scripture teaches us, the enemy is able to come and attack your spirit. And that's where for centuries after century, after, for millennia, he has been coming against the people of God with threats and lies and accusations. That's the whole realm that he works in. And so in this future event, he's actually cast down from that realm of influence and of power. And the saints realize the victory that's been won, and here's what they sing in praise. The accuser of our brothers and sisters has been thrown down to the earth, the one who accuses them before our God day and night. Can you imagine the day, and it's going to come, can you imagine the day when every demonic, lying, condemning, accusing voice that has ever whispered into your mind lies from the pit of hell, they will once and for all be silenced forever. Can you imagine living in that day, my friend? It is coming. When you won't be able to think a negative thought, it just won't be there. Like, what gives? It's, there's no influences anymore. He's been cast down. The scripture says that day is coming. But this is so important. Until that day, the Bible says we have to contend with the devil's lies and accusations. And Paul makes a very interesting observation, talking about the last days. How many believe that we are living in the last days? In, in his, in his uh, letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he describes some of the many traits that will characterize the culture of the last days before Christ comes. There's a few things that he lists here. And among those things, he says this, some will be false accusers. They will be gossips. They will be slanderers. And if that is the culture or the climate of our culture we live in, would it be a far stretch to suggest that maybe some Christians might also be false accusers? That if we live in a culture of false accusation, that it might be a little easy for us sometimes to kind of be of that same spirit. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? The Bible says that Job was a good man. I remember Job, book of Job, book of Job, whoever you read it, good man. In fact, the Bible says of God, God called him in chapter one, the finest man of all the earth. Here's the interesting thing. Here is a man that you could look at and could not think of anything wrong with him. And yet the Bible says that it didn't stop Satan. Didn't matter to him. He still accused Job anyway, but he didn't do it alone. Satan recruited a few unwitting accusers of the brethren to help him in his plan. He used people. Job's acquaintances, the Bible says, and some call him his friends, great friends. Job is sitting there, the flesh falling off of him, excruciating pain, honoring God, and it refuses to curse God. He honors God, he trusts God. And his friends come to try to help him, basically, for his own good. And as they sit around talking to Job, all they can see is the outside. Now, track with me for a minute here. That's all they can see. All they can see is his pain. All they can see is what he's going through. What they don't see is into the realm of the spirit. They have no idea what's going on behind the scenes. They have no idea what is going on in Job's heart. They have no idea the struggles he's having himself. And so here they come, and based on what they can see, they give their opinions. In fact, they even go so far as to presume to be speaking for God. When, for those of us who read the story, we actually know they are mouthpieces for the devil. Let me share a little insight with you. We know this very well, but need to remind us sometimes. When you're tempted to criticize somebody, and I'm not saying this because any situation in the church, don't get me wrong, it's just, just a simple thought that came to my mind. 
When you're tempted to criticize somebody, when you're tempted to condemn somebody, whether to their face or in talking to somebody else, when you're tempted to dump on somebody, I can almost guarantee you that they have already dumped on themselves. Does that make sense? They're already aware of their shortfallings. They're aware of the battles going on in their mind. They're aware of how they fail. Does that make sense? I mean, there's stuff going on inside that you don't see. In fact, a lot of times the things that we do see on the outside is because of what's going on in the inside. That's not easy, maybe a battle that's going on. I would suggest that that person actually feels their failures much more intently than you do. They're actually disappointed in themselves much more than maybe anything they've done for you or done to you. And I really believe that what they really could use is a little hope. Because I don't know about you, but I'm real good at condemning myself. Anybody? I'm not saying that's right. You know, don't start feeling bad for me and start writing emails and cards. Oh, you can send cards. Gift cards, actually. Swiss Chalet cards are always great. <laughs> really feel good at Swiss Chalet. But, um, but I just thought of that because when I was reading the, reading the Scripture in Revelation 12 about the enemy himself being the accuser of our brothers and sisters, it came to my mind these last days in which we live that one of the things that really characterize our culture is that tendency to always tear down, to tear people down. And that's kind of what Job was sitting in. But, but in chapter 16, Job says something very powerful and I think something very timely for us. He says this, Job says to his friends, you know, I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and shake my head at you. But if it were me, read it with me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. Isn't that powerful? Can I let you know a little secret? Life is really hard. Anybody find that? We all have different difficulties at different times, but I can tell you, my friends, life is good, life is wonderful, life is all those wonderful things, but a lot of times, life is really hard. I remember a bumper sticker years ago, it used some other words, I don't remember, it says, kind of like, life is hard, then you die. Isn't that encouraging? But it does share a very real sentiment. We all have struggles, we all have deficiencies, we all have inadequacies. Paul spoke of that. He said to the Corinthians, he, he said, I'm facing conflict from every direction, battles on the outside and fears on the inside. Friends, every single one of us here this morning, unless you're brain dead, can I say that? Every single one of us here this morning have days when we look into the mirror and we think, oh, that idiot again. You're still here? Nothing's changed. And then we put our makeup on to mask our struggle with doubts and fears and regrets and feelings of inadequacy. And if that's not bad enough, this is the thing I hate about the devil, he's such a bully. No matter how low you may feel, he will never stop taking advantage of that. He will manipulate that. Because on top of what you see when you look in the mirror and how you feel about yourself, on top of that, you have to contend with other voices. You have to contend with spiritual voices that have a real knack for dredging up every kind of memory, every kind of accusation, until they find a way to, for you to latch onto them, and those battles on the outside are there, those fears on the inside. We all need people around us who see our true value in God and who remind us who we are. You need friends like that. But here, more importantly, we need to be that kind of person. We need to determine to be the person who will see the value of, God, of somebody in God's eyes and who will seek to remind them of that. 
Does that make sense? We need the encouragement, but we need to give it as well. Let me give you a couple scriptures in closing. Thessalonians, encourage one another and build one another up. Philippians, do nothing out of selfishness or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Proverbs, I love this scripture. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. Scripture recognizes that there's an enemy at work in our hearts, in our minds to weigh us down. We don't need somebody to come along and remind us of how bad we've done or where we failed or where we're messing up. We need someone to come and bring a word that will make us glad, that will lift us up. Galatians, help carry one another's burdens. And I love Peter says, most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other. For love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? It means very simply, when the enemy is having his way in somebody's life, in their mind, in condemnation, shame, inadequacy, whatever it means, you have the opportunity to cut that rope. You have the opportunity to speak life into that person, regardless of what failures you may see on the outside, because you don't see the inside. You don't understand that in the realm of the Spirit what's going on. In fact, your word of criticism, your word of condemnation might be the last straw that pushes the person over the edge. And you don't know that. Or your word could be the last word that cuts the lie of the enemy and actually begins to breathe hope and hope and faith into that person's heart and actually turns them around. It's been said that we judge others by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our intentions. I think that's very wise, because we do that. Oh, I see what you did, but if I made the same mistake, oh, that's not what I meant. No, no, I said I didn't mean it that way. Or, or I did that because, I said that because they said to me. You see, it's our intentions. We always justify ourselves. But if you actually are maturing in Christ, I believe one of these signs of that is you flip that around. You judge yourself by your actions. That is, your heart and yourself in the sense that you own it. You bring it to God, you confess it, you're free, but you own it. But for somebody else, what do you do? You don't just judge the book by its cover, but rather you say, Lord, can I be an agent of redemption? Can I encourage? Can I help? Lord, why is it they are that? Why? Why did they say that? Why are they doing this? What are the case may be? How can I encourage them? How can I come alongside and be a part of what God is doing? That's what love is. That's what Corinthians says. Love trusts God. Love believes the best, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You see, when I'm truly walking in the spirit of love, when I'm when we're bearing each other's burdens and fulfilling the law of Christ, what am I doing? I'm actually coming alongside and saying, hey, maybe this is what you've done. Maybe this is what you look like right now. This is where you are. But you know what? According to God's word, I believe more for you. I believe better for you. This is what I see in you. This is who you can be. This is what you can do. What a difference. Because we all mess up sometimes. So we have to be careful we're not blinded to somebody else's potential we're not blinded to all the good they've done before just because they did something that's disappointed us right now. We're all learning, and we're all growing. I'm going to ask the worship team to join me. But I love those words of Job. He says, you can spout off criticism, you can shake your head. But if it were me, would you say it with me? I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. We're going to do something a little bit different this morning as we come to receive the emblems. Uh, we're going to play a, a song for you by Matthew West. It's called, Hello, My Name Is. And it starts, talking off, starts off talking about regret. 
and defeat. And how well acquainted most of us are with these friends, these works in our lives. But then he begins to turn it around and say, but who I really am is I'm a child of the King. And I want to invite you this morning as you come. What we're going to do in just a moment, we're going to stand as we close our service and we're going to, if you haven't been here before, just follow the person to your right. They're going to come down the aisle. I'm going to ask those who are sharing the emblems, uh, the brethren, would you come at this time? Those who are uh, standing with us this morning, just feel free to come. But as we receive the emblems, we'd ask you to take a piece of bread and a, a glass of juice, and then you can just go back to your seat and, and have a seat. But as we are receiving the emblems, we're going to play this song. It's kind of an upbeat song, so you're forgiven if you, you know, you kind of come down the aisle or, you know, if you're... The words kind of sink in, and you're starting to feel happy about the truth. Um, and I apologize for those bad moves. That's, I'm not a good dancer. But uh, ever since I got saved, uh, gave up a lot of things. Gave up coffee. Gave up a lot of things. Just kidding. Um, but I want, I want to encourage you to try to listen to the words. And really let the words get into your heart. And really receive this morning, before you leave this place, would you determine to open your heart to God's grace. And say, Lord, despite what I feel, despite what I've done, despite what anybody has said about me. Maybe you've got people of authority in your life over the years who spoke things into your life that are from the pit of hell that have shut you down. Whatever it may be, I want to encourage you this morning to open up your heart and say, Lord, I know what I've done, but I thank you for who I am. Let that be my starting point. Not what I've done, but who I am and what I can believe for in the days ahead. And if you're here this morning and you've never opened your heart to the love of God, He's not a God who has a bunch of rules for you. He's a God who has a way of truth for you to walk in that makes your life unfold. And all he asks you to do is to confess your sin. He says, would you just give it up to me? Would you just confess that you've been living life on your own terms, not doing a good job, that your sin separates you from me? Would you just confess that? Because until you do, I've given you a sovereign will. I can't, I can't do anything in your life. But if you'll confess it, open your heart to me. Then I, want to, I, I will come in. And I'll free you from your sin. I'll forgive you of your sin. You'll be my child. And you'll be washed clean.